Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 76, Mean Old World. Well, this episode contains part two of my three-hour-long discussion with fellow Young Earth creationists Cowboy Bob Sorensen and Nathan Schumacher. Uh, as per usual, I'll go ahead and skip any promotional material and any monologue, and I'll uh, jump right into the discussion after catching you back up uh, with where we left off. Uh, in the previous episode, episode 75, we spent a little bit of time getting to know Cowboy Bob Sorensen um, about his background, uh, his activity within the Young Earth Creationist movement, um, and he gave us the uh, the location of his blogs in case you want to check those out. And he promoted February 12th, which is coming up here in just a couple of days, which is Question Evolution Day. Uh, and I hope that you'll go to uh, Cowboy Bob's uh, blog to check out the material um, regarding that day. Um, I think it would be a good day for us all to encourage scientific inquiry and uh, open-mindedness. Um, in any case, we, so we got to know a little bit about Bob, and then we spent some time getting to know Nathan Schumacher uh, and uh, what it is that keeps him interested in, in this this issue. And then we uh, jumped into the question of what is it that really matters when we're talking about the debate between young earth creationism and old earth creationism. Uh, Nathan explained why he once thought that the question didn't matter. Um, but then Bob explained why, from, uh, from his experience, he mm -hmm. finds that uh, an acceptance of an old earth or of evolution com uh, is a compromise that causes us to question the validity of the whole Bible, or at least causes many people to. Uh, and we cited uh, Ken Ham's Already Gone as an... Um, uh, as an example of uh, work that's been done in that area. Um, Nathan explained why, uh, from his perspective, oftentimes it's the other way around, that unbelief actually is what leads to uh, old earth creationism and uh, evolution. And then we talked about the uh, challenge that we all face as um, people who believe in the inspired uh, text of Scripture, and that is uh, lining up or reconciling general revelation with special revelation. That is, because we believe the Bible's true and that the God who inspired the Bible is the God who created, we should see both of those uh, lines of evidence um, line up. The, the problem is, as Nathan explained, our, our problem with old earth creationism and evolution is not simply the attempt to reconcile those fears of, uh, of revelation, but rather uh, the authorities to which um, we are turning in reinterpreting scripture to fit uh, our interpretation of the scientific data. Um, as we explained, it's not simply a matter of what are, the, what are the material facts, what are the scientific facts, but what is the interpretation of those facts, and by what authority, uh, to what authority are we turning in, in interpreting, interpreting the way that we the way that we do. Nathan explained that uniformitarianism, among others, is an example of the kind of authority to which um, to which we're turning, to which we're subjecting our interpretation of the scientific data, and then therefore the biblical data. But if we let the uh, but if we let the biblical data be our authority, then that might cause us to uh, reinterpret our um, to reinterpret the scientific data. But then I asked uh, Cowboy Bob about passages in Scripture which have taken at face value, not con not taking into consideration the context and other factors, would conflict with what we do in fact know from the scientific data, like uh, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He set the world on them. And I asked Bob. Um, 
uh, how it is, what, what role general revelation plays in our understanding of scripture. Uh, and, he, and he answered that question, and it was at that point that we left off. And so now we'll pick up with the discussion with Nathan answering uh, the same question. So let's dive right in. This city mean no well. Try to live it by yourself. Nathan, what about you? Do you think that there may be some ways in which the scientific data can uh, legitimately help develop a more accurate interpretation of the Bible than might have otherwise been done? Within the limited scope of actual operational science, I think that's possible, and I'll kind of explain that term here in a little bit. Uh, Take this example. Uh, If you had incorrectly interpreted the Bible to teach that the earth was flat or that the sun revolved around the earth, the discoveries of modern science could cause you to question that. And through that process, you might be led to the correct interpretation. But I would be careful to say that modern science isn't necessary in that regard. You could have arrived at the correct interpretation from the beginning, Mm -hmm. apart from science, just by using correct hermeneutical principles. But there's an important distinction between those examples I provided, the flat earth or the sun revolving around the earth on the one hand, and something like the age of the earth on the other hand. Those first examples fall within the capability of operational science. We can observe these things. The earth is spherical in the present. We can see it. The earth revolves around the sun in the present. We can verify that. Uh, We can observe and verify both of these facts. But what about the age of the earth? It's not like that, is it? In fact, it's not really a scientific matter at all, but rather a, a historical matter. And we have an inspired, inerrant book of history written by an omniscient historian. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely agree, agree. Well, but so then what principles do guide a proper interpretation of the Bible? Can you provide us with an example? Sure. Uh, there are several, and before I get to that, I'll just give a little bit of background information on the interpretation. Uh, there are several different methods of biblical interpretation in use today, but the one that most evangelical Christians hold to, or at least uh, profess to hold to, and this is regardless of their position on the age of the earth, is the historical grammatical method. Uh, now, many people are familiar with the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, But the same council that produced that also produced a statement on biblical hermeneutics, which both affirms and explains that uh, method, the historical grammatical method. And a few weeks ago, I came across this uh, statement, and the copy that I had read had commentary on each point by Dr. Norman Geisler that appears to be a part of the original statement. I couldn't tell for sure if it was or not, but just the way it's written, it it sounds like he was uh, tasked with the kind of like an explanatory paragraph underneath each point there. Mm. Uh, I want to read you a statement from Article 17. Uh, Quote, We affirm the unity, harmony, and consistency of Scripture and declare that it is its own best interpreter. End quote. And Geisler further comments, saying, quote, The first commentary the interpreter should consult on a passage is what the rest of Scripture may say on that text. End of quote. Uh, Now let's move to Article 19. 
we affirm that any pre-understandings which the interpreter brings to Scripture should be in harmony with scriptural teaching and subject to correction by it. We deny that Scripture should be required to fit alien pre-understandings inconsistent with itself, such as naturalism, evolutionism, scientism, secular humanism, and relativism. End quote. Now, although uniformitarianism isn't explicitly stated on that list, I think we've demonstrated that it is also a pre-understanding or presupposition, and therefore subject to correction sure. uh, by the by the scriptures. Yeah. Uh, so, according to those principles, this uh, is how we would properly interpret the creation days of Genesis one. So, I'm finally getting around to answering your question. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're asking the question: uh, Were the creation days literal days? Or vast ages of time? Well, as the Council says, uh, let's turn to the Scriptures. And we read in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, and uh, I'm repeating Cowboy Bob here because he already re read us this text, but I want to read it again. Um, and uh, very telling. R remember, the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. And by the way, the same wording is repeated in uh, chapter 31, verse 17. So we conclude correctly that God himself told Moses that the days in which he worked when he created the heavens and the earth are the same as the days in which man is to work during the week. Mm. And um, I'm just repeating what, what Bob said earlier, but I, I want to uh, highlight that because I think that is tremendously important and it's a, a good example of interpreting uh, the Bible correctly, using Scripture as the counsel, as the, uh, as the statement says. Now, let me give you an improper interpretation of Genesis 1. Okay. And for this, I'm going to turn to the text of general revelation interpreted by humanistic assumptions. Okay. And, and we read, quote, um, The earth is billions of years old because of the speed of light and the distance of the stars, radioisotope dating techniques, the geologic column, etc. Uh, so we conclude, incorrectly, the creation days can't be literal because science tells us they're not. Right. Now, less than, if you think I'm building a straw man, here's a quote from a biology professor at a respected Christian university. And he says, uh, begin quote, It is apparent that the most straightforward understanding of the Genesis record, without regard to all the hermeneutical considerations suggested by science, is that God created heaven and earth in six solar days, that man was created on the sixth day, that death and chaos entered the world after the fall of Adam and Eve, that all of the fossils were the result of the catastrophic universal deluge, which spared only Noah's family and the animals therewith. End of quote. And now the same Norman Geisler, who I said wrote the commentary on the uh, Chicago Statement of Biblical Hermeneutics, he said this, Most scientific evidence sets the age of the world at billions of years. The age of the universe is based on the speed of light and the distance of the stars, as well as the rate of expansion of the universe. 
Early rocks have been dated in terms of radioactivity and set at billions of years old. Uh, end of quote. And also, he said this, speaking of the genealogies in the Bible. And I'll begin the quote here. If they are closed, then the creation of mankind is placed somewhere around 4000 BC, which flies in the face of all the historical and scientific evidence for a minimum date of humanity. End quote. And I do have the citations for these, uh, if anyone is interested. I could pass them along. Uh, but here's what it looks like to me. It looks like Dr. Geisler is in practice denying what he affirms in his statement. Yeah. Evidently, it's okay for an interpretation of the scientific evidence to fly in the face of biblical interpretation, but not vice versa. And uh, I'm bringing this to a close here. Last but not least, Charles Hodge, a Reformed theologian of the 19th century, wrote, It is, of course, admitted that taking the creation account by itself, it would be most natural to understand the word day in its ordinary sense. But if that sense brings the Mosaic account into conflict with facts, and another sense avoids such conflict, then it is obligatory on us to adopt that other sense. So, not only is it acceptable to reinterpret day as a long period of time to conform our interpretation of the Bible to the facts of nature, but we are obligated to do that, according to Charles Hodge. So, are we going to follow the advice of Hodge and Geisler? Or shall we follow the advice of Martin Luther, who said, But if you cannot understand how heaven and earth <clears throat> were created in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. Mm -hmm. For you are to deal with Scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God himself says what is written. But since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you to wantonly turn his word in the direction you wish to go. Yeah, that's an excellent quote. I, I like some things that uh, uh, Martin Luther has had to say. <laughs> I think that's a good one. Um, you know, and I think that a lot of what you said makes sense, but but there are situations in which I don't think that the historical grammatical method is proper, at least not as practiced by many who profess to use it. Um, both of you are aware, for example, of how I interpret the Olivet Discourse, as well as uh, much of the Book of Revelation. I, I don't want to get into a debate with either of you, at least not today. <laughs> but, uh, but certainly neither of you would deny that some genres of biblical literature are highly symbolic, uh, maybe ought not to be taken very literally. Um, Nathan, I, I definitely agree with you about the genealogical records in Genesis. They're, they're very clearly historical in genre, but what about the first couple chapters of Genesis? What, what reasons do we have for interpreting those historically rather than perhaps metaphorically like I would Revelation? Yeah, I, I'm actually in agreement with you, Chris, that certain statements by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 should be taken figuratively. For instance, in verse 29, we read this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, a lot of people don't realize that that particular statement is not just a part of the historical narrative of Jesus' teaching, but it has a prophetic context. In Isaiah chapter 13, God foretells judgment on Babylon. Listen to verse 10 and note its striking resemblance to Jesus' statement. Uh, verse 10 of Isaiah 13. For the stars... Of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light, the sun will be darkened at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Look at Joel uh, 
chapter 2, verse 10, regarding the people God uses to bring destruction in the day of the Lord. He says, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Now, remember that Jesus had said, The powers of heaven will be shaken. Well, through the prophet Haggai, God had said, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Now, particularly with respect to the Isaiah passage where the judgment of Babylon is foretold, that is a past event. The fulfillment of that prophecy is complete. Yet, the sun, moon, and stars continue to shine in a literal sense. So, you mentioned the highly figurative language in uh, Revelation as well, which Revelation is in the literary genre of apocalypse. And we could speak of such language in Ezekiel and Daniel and other places. So, Whatever method we use to interpret the Bible has to account for figurative language such as this. So, Chris, I'm in complete agreement with you mm. uh, as far as that goes. Um, now to actually, again, I take a long time to introduce the answer. <laughs> no, it's okay. But <laughs> to actually answer that question, I think that the historical grammatical method properly used, and that's the key, and I think this is something you hinted at, too, in asking the question. Um, properly used not only allows for, but demands figurative interpretations of texts. Going back to that uh, Chicago statement uh, on biblical hermeneutics, Article 13 says this, We affirm that awareness of the literary categories, formal and stylistic, of the various parts of Scripture is essential for proper exegesis and hence, we value genre criticism as one of the many disciplines of biblical study. So, the historical grammatical method actually demands that we interpret according to the specific characteristics of literary genres. Right. And figurative language is definitely characteristic of prophecy, apocalypse, and poetry as well, perhaps some other genres. Uh, People who would literalize Matthew 24, verse 29, are not using this literary method, but rather a more literalistic type of method, yeah. not the historical grammatical method. Um, now, there's one more question here. To answer the question, why shouldn't we interpret Genesis 1 and 2 figuratively? Well, Genesis is not poetry, it's not prophecy, it's not apocalypse. It's historical narrative, and we should interpret that genre literally like we would any other historical record you asked about the genealogies in chapter 5 saying they have to be literal but maybe that doesn't necessitate that chapters 1 and 2 need to be taken as literal historical narrative uh, well a lot of things could be said but the one thing that's glaringly obvious to me is that in the beginning of chapter 2 verse 4 we read this these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And I, I want to just highlight that word, generations. Mm. So now observe the symmetry between that and chapter 5, verse 1. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Again, using the same uh, Hebrew word as the generations of chapter 2, verse 4. <clears throat> this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. Now, in the entire Old Testament, whenever that Hebrew word translated generations appears, its meaning is that of a literal historical record of birth or lineage. Mm -hmm. Chapter 2 and 5 share that same word, and the phraseology is also very similar. It seems to me that those two are tied together. 
and it's clear to me. Uh, chapters one and two are history, just like chapter five. The only reason, in my mind at least, to view chapters one and two differently than chapter five is to justify trying to reconcile the notion of an old earth with the Bible. Yeah, I think that's a that's an excellent um, explanation. And and uh, up until today, I wasn't even aware of the connection between the beginning of chapter two there and the generations uh, as used elsewhere. So that, that, that's really cool. Uh, we're we're going to turn back to Bob in just a second. I know you've been sitting patiently for a while, Bob. But uh, but one last question for you, Nathan, before we switch gears. Uh, in answering some of my previous questions, Bob gave us a number of reasons to believe that the Bible teaches special creation and a young earth. Do you agree with those list those that he listed? And are there any others that you would like to add? I do agree with those that Bob listed, and he covered just about everything on my list. Um, first, I would highlight what he said about the connection between uh, excuse me, Romans 5 and 8. That is a critical connection that I think a lot of people don't understand. And I'm just repeating what he said. I, I don't have anything else to add to that. But it's critical to understand that the fall of creation is connected to the fall of man, mm -hmm. just as the redemption of creation is connected to the redemption of man. So that's why you can't have death within creation before the sin of Adam. And just two things, uh, there are two other things actually that I might add um, to what Bob said. First, Romans 1.20 says that ever since the creation of the world, the invisible attributes of God have been clearly seen so that man is without excuse. And this is a verse that goes alongside Mark 10.6 that Bob mentioned because it states that man has existed since the beginning of creation. Uh, how could this statement be true at all if the earth had already existed billions of years before man was created? Mm. One more thing. Um, every old earth advocate that I'm aware of places the creation of the sun and stars millions of years before the earth was formed. And, of course, they have to do this to conform to the popular secular Big Bang theory of origins. Um, but even if you could reasonably add millions of years to the days of creation, which I believe we've demonstrated you can't, there's still a basic problem. According to Genesis 1, the earth was formed on days 1 through 3, while the sun, moon, and stars weren't created until day 4. Now, old earth advocates have done all kinds of contorting to solve this problem, but none of their solutions, in my opinion, even approach doing justice to the text. For instance, Hugh Ross has theorized that the creation days overlapped one another, huh. so that par part of day four actually existed on day three. And that would allow the sun to exist before at least part of the formed Earth. Um, it's really amazing and sad to see these gymnastics performed with the text of Genesis 1. Yeah, it is. It is definitely sad. And another example of those kinds of gymnastics, I, I think that actually I recall Hugh Ross arguing for was that when it says God created, uh, you know, the sun and moon and stars after the earth, it was really referring to those becoming visible um, through the uh, atmosphere of the earth or something like that. It, it, it really is mm. a, a bunch of gymnastics. Yeah. Um, I want to shift gears, uh, and in a little bit, I want to talk about some evidence outside the Bible supporting young earth. But first, let's talk about some of the challenges leveled uh, against us, leveled against the biblical teaching of young earth. And I, I want to turn to you first, Bob. Before we get into uh, specifics, what are some of the tactics used by ancient earthers, theistic evolutionists, or atheists that you, that you found frustrating? Old Earthers have actually misrepresented and even lied about creationists with startling venom. There was a page I was referred to 
and or a site about some biblical archaeology, and then I found here are places that young earthers are liars. And I go, what is this? Is this a Christian site? Apparently, it was. Huh. Atheists will gleefully lie about creationists and will do almost anything in their power to destroy the messenger. And I've hit them with this several times. I say, you want to destroy the messenger since you cannot destroy the message. Um, they're They've gone to all kinds of lengths to record phone calls or use photographs without permission and pretend that they have the right to do so. Slander, misrepresent, deliberately misunderstand Christians so they can misquote, especially creationists. If you disagree with evolution, what are your scientific credentials, as I brought up before? And I think that's a double standard. And uh, someone has said that he read an article that I linked to at Piltdown Superman, and he said the article was useless. Later on, I found out that the link was broken. Uh, looks like an atheist lied to me about reading it, huh? Hmm. Uh, another one said that he read my entire site and found nothing worthwhile in it. I asked him if he could debunk the astrophysicists, the geologists, the biologists, and so forth that I had linked. Well, you know what happened there. I just kind of tapered off. By the way, I want to interject here that what I'm referring to are my own personal online encounters. Uh, it's not stuff I've read from other people. So whether it's evolutionists, old earthers, uninformed general public or whatever, they would do well to check actual creationist sources instead of doing copy and paste from the God doesn't exist but I hate him anyway sites that are a pooling of ignorance. Hmm. Evolutionists not only skip doing their homework on what creationists actually believe, but they do not seem to understand their own theories. I was hit with the misunderstandings of the discredited Miller experiment as proof, for instance. One reason I have the question Evolution Day thing going is to encourage people to check actual creationist and ID material. Evolutionists are angry because it was not set up as a playground for creationist bashing, and they missed the point of the page itself. Now, I think this is a Calvinist term, but the noetic effect of sin, which uh, basically sin permeates so much that it affects your thinking, um, not just in spiritual matters, but your intelligence. Mm. And to use a slickism, stupidification. <laughs> and I've seen it. People just seem to get dumber on some stuff. And where people are given over to the sin it, and um, it affects thinking, spiritual condition, and then they resort to selective citing, quote mining, misquotes, and other similar things. Those are forms of lying in and of themselves. I've been called a liar for A, stating a fact that is detrimental to evolution, and B, made me appear to be lying because I was misquoted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you've also identified uh, what you think are quite a number of logical fallacies committed by critics of young earth creationism. And I know you have a lot of thoughts to share, so I'll, I'll you know, give you some time to share these with us. Uh, share with us uh, the, some of these fallacies that you've encountered in the context of origins in the age of the earth. To use the scientific term, there are bunches. <laughs> and uh, Nathan, kick back, <laughs> relax. Um I'm not even going to use everything that I've encountered. And that's one reason I started the logic lesson section on my weblogs was 
These are things that I've encountered, and I think Christians should be uh, aware of them. And I think they're also very timely in the political spectrum, too. Logical fallacies can be clear-cut and easy to spot, but they often overlap, blend, and blur. In my research, I saw that people disagree on the classifications of the fallacies themselves, so it's not a cut-and-dried thing. The main point is to be able to spot nonsense and distractions when you're confronted with it. All Christian apologists should learn about logical fallacies so we do not make them and give our opponents more excuses to disregard what we have to say. On Twitter, I've been hit with three fallacies in one tweet. <laughs> now, I feel funny using the word tweet. I feel like such a man. Well, I'm going to go tweet now. Don't bother me. Well, I guess John Wayne could tweet. He could make it sound manly. Probably. I believe that there are two purposes when people use them against Christians, especially against creationists. First, to insult and put us down by people who want to build themselves up, a digital version of playground bullies. Second, to distract from the original topic. Many things can be lumped into the red heresy umbrella fallacy with variations. It's so easy to go off on a rabbit trail, but once we learn how to spot a fallacy, use a little self-discipline, we can avoid them and, and come back to our topic. I really believe that when someone comes along and just launches at you, they're not interested in civil discourse, they're simply trolling. Most common is the ad hominem fallacy. Hmm. That's a fancy word for to the man, and you get insulted. Now, sometimes an insult is just an insult, but when it's used in any kind of a, an argument in the classical traditional sense, then it's meant to... Um, bring you down so people will not believe what you're saying or take you as seriously. And you can mix the ad hominem with poisoning the well against you and people are listening, watching, reading along, and then this guy, he said something bad about him, so I'm not going to take him seriously. Hmm. These can be very subtle and hidden as well as overt. One of the most important fallacies to learn is the genetic fallacy. Now, ironically, for evolutionists, the word means to affirm or reject something based on its origin or its genesis. <laughs> Religious people have no scientific method is one example that I was hit with. Another is that there are no creationist scientists. All true scientists accept evolution. Now, that's blending the fallacy of assertion as well as appeal to authority. Atheists are free thinkers, rational, and that sort of thing, as if being an atheist somehow made you smarter than everyone else. Yeah. And that's just based on the term. Now, the appeal to ridicule, where sometimes they'll just come out right and uh, ridicule you, or threaten to do it. You take a certain position, people will laugh at you. I'll make fun of you on my weblog. Um, using ad hominem, other ridicule, typo pouncing, <laughs> misquoting. People resort to that stuff are really arguing from a position of strength, aren't they? Yeah. Another great one is the straw man fallacy. 
people will claim that we hold a position, then attack that position. Uh, sorry, I am not obligated to defend a position that I don't hold. A simple and common example for that is when people take verses out of context. And that includes what we talked about with cultural, historical, linguistic, and other contexts. Then they'll put modern definitions and expectations on them, and then they'll fling them at us. They're often misquoted. The verses are often misquoted outright as well. No, the Bible does not teach a flat earth, but taking verses from the apocalyptic and poetic sections, manipulating them, you can pretend it does. <laughs> I just like being told what I believe by people using the proven scientific method of making stuff up. And this is invariably a straw man argument. One logical fallacy deserves special emphasis, and that is appeal to emotion. And that really mixes in with the ad hominem, too. And that can be vague and subtle as well. I should point out right here that this manipulation is different than when you get into a motivational speech or an article. When you're trying to actually motivate somebody in that way, in the legitimate way, you're using tools to spur people to action, not motivate them to hate others because the manipulators do not want to have logical arguments. Right. When we say that there are no transitional forms or that macroevolution is false, we are called liars. That overlaps into a blending of ad hominem, a variation of poisoning the well so others are not supposed to believe what is being said by the opponent. Disagreeing with current trends on the interpretation of evolutionary data or scientific data is not lying. Sorry, Buttercup, calling someone a liar for disagreeing is not the spirit of scientific inquiry. Yeah. I strongly suspect that some people cannot differentiate between lying and honest disagreement. There is a ridiculous assertion, assertion called liar for Jesus, as if someone knew the mind and motives of the speaker. The simple fact is they do not like what is being said and want to destroy the presenter, which again, um, they're appealing to emotion and poisoning the well. One guy is so angry and hateful, he ridicules Ken Ham's beard. Oh, wow. Evolutionists use the fallacy, if you understood evolution, you'd believe it. And I'm not sure if, like I've said, these things are hard to categorize sometimes. So if that's an appeal to authority or just a veiled ad hominem, you're stupid. At any rate, it's rubbish. Uh, People who understand evolution don't always believe it. Just ask the scientists who must learn evolution, and they refute it. Also, I've had comments from them that show their own ignorance of the subject, just having blind faith. If you understood genetics, for instance, yeah, as if you did, are you a geneticist? Some have hit me with this remark and made some amazingly silly, illogical remarks. Yeah. Watch out for redefining terms. This one was new for me. Someone was asserting that creationists are not scientists. Yeah, I've heard that plenty of times. I gave him a link to several dozen, and he said they are still not scientists. Turned out, once I got down to it and got an answer finally, he was being very dishonest. The only real scientist is an evolutionary biologist. Right. I don't know of a specialized name for 
a Latin thing for outright dishonesty as a fallacy, but it is fallacious. I saw something posted alleging that Christians are responsible for more deaths in history than atheists. It turns out that this thing laid more most of the wars in history at our feet. That's just another bad argument. Or another bad argument I had along those lines is that Christians are blowing up buildings. His justification was the Irish Republican Army terrorists. <laughs> Since they are Catholics and Catholicism is a branch of Christianity, it's our fault. No, the fault is most likely politics. He also tried to saddle me with the Oklahoma City bomber McVeigh, who was a self-proclaimed Darwinist. And the Norwegian shooter Brevik was also a Darwinist. But they tried to call them Christian because they lived in Christian-leaning countries. Uh, people lived in Christian-leaning countries, and they were considered Christian by culture. But nobody's coming up with Bible verses that they use to justify their actions. The word faith is redefined by evolutionists to indicate that we deliberately believe something we know is not true or have no reason to believe. Another fallacy is equivocation. Like uh, macro and microevolution are not the same thing. Right. I was told that since I believe in microevolution, I believe in macroevolution. Thanks for telling me what I believe. <laughs> But this guy showed a horrible knowledge of biological limits. The bigger fallacy of equivocation comes from the popes of atheism where they equate religion, but have not done their homework about the difference between Mohammedans, the Koran, Christians, and the Bible. John Lennox pointed out to Richard Dawkins that he was equating the Amish with the Taliban. Do the Amish crash their buggies into buildings? <laughs> For that matter, I do not know of people doing mass murders by following the teachings of the Bible. Fallacy of assertion. Oh boy, do they like this one. Just say something and it magically becomes true. It's related to the fallacy of re repeated assertion. People who, treat, people who teach Christianity to their children are guilty of child abuse. Fossils prove evolution. No, those are just assertions, and they're based on their presuppositions. Let me emphasize that facts are facts. It's the interpretations of facts that are at issue. Evolution is a proven fact, is just an assertion. People tell us what we believe, but they have no idea. One of the most vile examples of the fallacy of assertion came from a particularly mentally impaired individual who claimed that I wanted all non-Christians dead. Wow. When I insisted that he back up his libelous remark, he followed with another assertion that he is right because his remark is true. So assertion with circular reasoning. <laughs> I was accused of pretending to be other people. Sock puppets, sometimes they use that. Um, one of these false identities involved making up an entire weblog for several years under a different writing style, different name, different gender. Two of my accusers retracted their statements, and then since they were so mad at me, they retracted their retractions. <laughs> what really sets them off is I have screenshots of catching them in their uh, dishonesty. And all of it's based on assertion. Now, I don't know the 
correct pronunciation of the Latin, so I'll skip it. But watch for the so are you or you are one too fallacy. To revisit my example of the equivocation fallacy, I'll point out that atheists have murdered and tortured millions of people in the 20th century alone, many of them Christians and Jews. Yeah, but so have you. And come up with nonsensical, inflated, and often completely dishonest statistics to fling at us. And by the way, see that these are also red herrings to distract you and get you off the topic? Right. Now, you can be called upon to defend other things and get away from the topic. The problem with this fallacy is that, at times, the focus of the argument has shifted to comparisons. So on occasion, it may not be an actual fallacy. There is also the either-or fallacy where other options are not considered. In my preparation for this discussion, I was hit with, if your question evolution page on Facebook forbids skepticism, it is not a page of science, it is a page of propaganda. He ignored the fact that the page is not set up for people to come along and bash creationists. It is an entirely different purpose. Right. I've been hit with the argument from silence. That was good. One of my main trolls who has reduced himself to following a particularly vicious atheist in a Me Too state has made remarks like, if you delete my comment, it will prove that I am right. And one time on Twitter, I wandered off to watch TV. When I came back, I found somebody had bombarded me with several tweets. Since I had not responded, not only did he claim that I was unable to respond to his challenges, but he claimed victory is mine in a debate that I did not even know existed. <laughs> yeah. Appeal to motive includes a multitude of sins. That is, so many fallacies can be mixed in. He won't answer because he's scared. Creationists want to deceive us. Things like that. It's a cheap way to attack the person and try to neutralize what he has to say. Again, destroy the messenger because you cannot refute the message. And uh, the presuppositions. Um, all through this, I have noticed that that word has been able to be plugged in. There, people have their presuppositions. Now, nobody is unbiased and completely neutral, despite the noble claims that um, people make about scientists that they start out neutral, they strictly follow where the evidence leads. Um, atheistic evolutionists are extremely condescending when talking to us stupid, ignorant creationists. I think we have enough on these uh, fallacies and circular reasoning and things, but I want people to look up begging the question or circular reasoning. Evolutionists prove evolution is true by assuming that it is true in their proofs. It was said that, to date, not a single point he's ever made has survived about me. It hasn't survived being tested by science. Of course, I think that's statistically impossible. Also, this particular small mob of angry atheists do not have the documentation, let alone the ability and the credentials to discredit all of the science that has been presented on Piltdown Superman. The presupposition that evolution is true, if they do not like what is presented, um, I'm presenting something false based on their prep presupposition, not evidence. Yeah, their entire presuppositions are fundamentally flawed. Yeah, that was like uh, drinking from a fire hose of uh, logical fallacies. I, I appreciate you sharing that, Nathan. You've also noted some fallacies committed by critics of uh, of our view. Is that right? 
Actually, yes, but you know, if I could go back to something that Bob said, um, I have a quote, and I hadn't included it. I just have it in another uh, document full of, of notes and quotes and things. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned, Bob, about uh, there not being a point of neutrality. We all have presuppositions. Well, a lot of people who think they might be scientific-minded might be surprised to hear what Albert Einstein uh, had to say on the matter. So let me quote, uh, but in principle, it is quite wrong to try founding a theory on observable magnitudes alone. In reality, the very opposite happens. It is the theory which decides what we can observe. Very interesting. Uh, you know, we've been sold this idea that uh, there's a point of neutrality and you gather all the evidence and see where it leads. No, you have, everyone has a presupposition that they approach the evidence with, and that is going to determine where they end up. Uh, a popular uh, term for that, I think, might be garbage in, garbage out. Hmm. The presupposition will determine the conclusion, and what you have to do is just, uh, <clears throat> you have to compare the two, the, the stories, as I think we're going to get into here in a little bit. You know, you, this presupposition leads to this conclusion. This other presupposition, um, interpreting the same evidence, leads to a different conclusion. You kind of have to put these two things <coughs> side by side um, and see Sorry. which one makes better sense of the evidence. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, you had asked the question, uh, Chris, about uh, logical fallacies that I had noticed. And I'm really glad that Bob had uh, brought this up because at first when I knew that um, you wanted to this to be a part of the discussion, Bob, I thought, well, that's interesting, and I, I can always learn more about fallacies, but I'm not sure that I've observed much in the way of logical fallacies myself, and I certainly haven't personally experienced them the way you have. But as I've read things, um, and, and as I started mulling this over, I, I was able to identify several prominent fallacies, and one or two of these are ones that you uh, have already mentioned, but... <clears throat> I have examples of these particular things. So um, with regard to older thinking, the first is an appeal to the majority. Mm. Uh, it goes something like this. Only a few people today believe in a young earth. So what's the implication there? The majority must be right. <laughs> and now a second one, which is kind of similar, would be an appeal to authority. Uh, I've heard... Scientists believe the Earth is billions of years old. Well, what's implied? And with stress on the term there, scientists believe the Earth is billions of years old. Well, what's implied is that we should believe them just because they're scientists and right. because in our, mo in our modern age, somehow we vest seemingly unlimited amounts of authority in them. Uh, often we'll hear a combination of these two things. So the vast majority of scientists believe that the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. Uh, a real example where I heard something like this was, uh, uh, I mean, a, a part of this logical fallacy here of appeal to uh, authority and majority, actually. Um, I was listening to, um, or I, I, excuse me, I was watching a video of the debate on the John Ankerberg show in which Dr. Hugh Ross and young earth astrophysicist Dr. Jason Lyle participated. Hmm. Have either, either of you seen that video? No, but if you can find me a link for it, I'd like to include it because I'd, I'd love to watch that debate. I'll try to find one. I know it was available on the Answers in Genesis uh, website. And that's I where I – Sorry, but Ankerberg kept cutting off uh, Lyle and Ken Ham. 
Wow. Yes. Yeah, he did. Um, and Ankerberg is a, you know, he believes in an old earth, and they, that came out in the debate very, very clearly. You know, it was, he didn't make that much of an attempt to conceal his bias in the matter. <laughs> but, um, so, so you've seen it, Bob, and there's one, something I'm a little hazy on here as we go, but uh, I, I remember the basic gist of how this went. Um, and re- following one of Jason Lyle's arguments, Hugh Ross said something like this. This isn't a word-for-word word quote, but he said, would you be willing to present that argument to a group of secular astrophysicists? And the question was accompanied by some kind of scornful grin there. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you remember that part there, Bob. you remember that at all? No, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but uh, I had such a bad impression. Even though it's available for purchase and probably on YouTube, I haven't gone back to it. Yeah. Well, it was really telling. Uh, and, again, the majority of real scientists, those who really know their stuff, would laugh you off the stage if they heard you present that argument. Right. Anyway, um, the third thing I've heard of fallacy number three, and this is one that I was trying to find a category for, and Bob helped me out with this one. Thanks, Bob. Um, and that is the appeal to consequences of belief. Mm. This is kind of a broad category, but here's an example of that. Hugh Ross, again, uh, I didn't intentionally want to pick on him through this whole discussion. (laughs) Honestly, didn't. uh, He's just so well-known. Yeah, Yeah, he is. He is the foremost um, old Earth creationist out there, and he's said a lot of things that need to be addressed. So, no, I I don't think I'm being unfair in using his name. in addressing his arguments. But anyway, he has said that young earth creationism hampers the gospel. And you're thinking, well, what does that mean? You know, well, here's what I think he means by that, is that if people know you believe in something as preposterous as a young earth, they're likely to reject your gospel message as well. Yeah. Well, aside from being a theological fallacy, that's also a, a logical fallacy. You know, a position is not true or false because holding it helps us achieve our objective. Now, along those same lines, and this one I, I'm even more saddened by because this is this is someone from within the Reformed camp who I think should know a lot better. Uh, along those same lines, Tim Keller, a Reformed pastor, believes that demonstrating compatibility between the Bible and evolution will bring more converts to Christ. Mm-hmm. So... It's not what's right or what God has said that's important, but it's what works. Yeah. Assuming, of course, that that will work. And I just think that's kind of like an American. Well, I know that uh, you know it, it's along the lines of pragmatism. That's it's been said that pragmatism is our American-born philosophy. It's the one that really has been it has emerged from from America. Um, and it, it's sad that we're judging. Uh, what is what we should do or what we should believe by what we think works, at least works in the short term. Yeah. And the, the final thing that I've uh, observed here is uh, much more subtle, but it has had a profound effect. And here I'm just repeating Bob again uh, w- when he talked about circular reasoning, also known as begging the question. Uh, and to commit this fallacy is to assume the truth of the conclusion in the premise of the argument. So I have a fun little story here. Um, a geologist says, we know that this rock is 2.3 million years old. 
So you ask him, how do you know? Did that rock tell you how old it was? <laughs> and he, repli he replies, well, this rock was taken from a stratum or rock layer in which an index fossil was found, and we know that fossil to be 2.3 million years old. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> so you find the paleontologist and ask him, Mr. Paleontologist, how did you know that the index fossil in that rock layer was 2.3 million years old? He replies, why? That type of fossil is found only in rock layers that are 2.3 million years old. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the geologist appeals to the authority of paleontology to determine the age of his rock, and the paleontologist appeals to the authority of the geologist to determine the age of his fossil. And you're going to ask me, come on, Nathan, is that really the way they do it? Um, is that another straw man? You know, that, that just seems so preposterous. How could you believe that that's, that's the way it's actually done? Right. Well, if you have an Encyclopedia Britannica, you could look up geology and read the following. Begin quote. It cannot be denied that from a strictly philosophical standpoint, geologists are here arguing in a circle. The succession of organism has been determined by a study of their remains embedded in the rocks and the relative ages of the rocks are determined by the remains of the organisms that they contain. Hmm. Uh, I have a lot of similar things that we don't have time for. I have a, a list of about seven or eight quotes like that. Um, and, and not just from the encyclopedia, but from uh, scientists who accept uniformitarianism and accept this whole idea of millions and billions of years. <clears throat> um, but uh, again... There are startling admissions out there that we haven't been given the opportunity to hear for the most part, and I hope that's something that's going to come out in this discussion. Um, the entire notion that the Earth is ancient from a scientific perspective is built on one big logical fallacy, and that is that fallacy of uh, begging the question. And here is the dangerous thing about logical fallacies. They work. Mm. They've been very effective in convincing the public and even believing Christians that the earth is billions of years old. Yes, it is very unfortunate. Part of the reason is that people think with their emotions. Yep, that's very yeah. true. That's very true. I'll, I'll, I'll admit that, um, and, and I'm ashamed of this a little bit, uh, but I'll admit that even I'm a little uh, hesitant to discuss my views on the age of the earth with uh, uh, with unbelievers because of the emotional uh, response to the prospect of being laughed at, you know, or being um, uh, thought of as being ridiculous. So emotion can be very powerful. Um, so yeah, I, yeah. Could I say one more thing there? Yeah. It's it's uh, what you said there. It what we're talking about today. It takes courage to do this. It's not. We're not just saying you. People who believe in an old earth, you know, you're just um, deluded and all this. And, and, you know, we would never fall for this kind of uh, uh, tactics and just trying to appease and, and be liked and things like that. Um, no, it's difficult, like you say there, Chris. And I, I would probably fall in that category, too, sometimes. Um, I, if you come out and say what it is you believe, you are going to be um, ostracized. You're going to be ridiculed. So... Uh, yeah, we should we should we should do this, but it's not going to be easy. That's absolutely right. You know, I, I can sympathize when um, people like the apologists we mentioned earlier talk about how they've been uh, they've had 
appearances that have been canceled at certain organizations when they found out that he's an ancient earther and, and I think that's unfortunate but but I also think that it's a little bit um disingenuous to suggest that this kind of uh, that this kind of treatment is a one-way street. <laughs> it's most certainly not. I mean, I, we might, we might, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending upon your take, uh, you know, sort of cancel people's appearances if we find out that they're old earthers. Uh, but, but come on, old earthers will, you know, will frankly laugh at us or say how absurd we are for holding the views that we have. And so, um, you know, it really is, it is a two-way street and we need to be willing to stand up for the truth, whatever we think it is, regardless of uh, our fears. All right, that was part two of our discussion. I hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, next episode will contain part three and, and the final part of our discussion. And so I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. Until then. Music